2: It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back on Lewis Hamilton's Japanese Grand Prix win and ask if it's all over for Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari. So, Lewis Hamilton's victory in the Japanese Grand Prix puts him on the brink of a fourth world championship, 59 points ahead of Sebastian Vettel, with 100 to play for. Like Vettel says, it's not over, but I think we all know what's going to happen come the end of the season. Hamilton could even wrap up the championship in Austin. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to look back on the Japanese Grand Prix and all the big stories on and off track, first is a returnee to the Autosport Podcast, a name of old, Andrew van der Berg, who's probably not been on Autosport Podcast for a few years. The previous short-lived incarnations of it and now you're you're back at autosport media uk as a as a big cheese
3: yeah thanks ed um i think this is the at least the third iteration of autosport podcast i've been on from the original ones in sort of 2007 time and then the last lot we did on my final stint in the uh hallowed ship of autosport in 2013 i think was my last one so yeah good to be back
2: and for those who are a little bit disorientated by the return of uh the southwest lilt of uh, Andrew Vanderberg. We also have a more familiar voice, that of Scott Mitchell, the increasingly long-haired Scott Mitchell. He's got some charity excuse for the fact he's never cut his hair or something.
4: Yeah, I'm offering the um, I'm offering the eastern equivalent of uh, the southern coast of of England. Um, yeah, so I've got uh, I've got a charity thing that's been going on now since the start of the year. Um, there's a charity called Little Princess Trust, which makes real hair wigs for kids that have had uh, cancer and other and other illnesses that require treatment that loses them their hair so i'm about two-thirds of the way three quarters of the way through my attempt to grow my hair long enough to chop it off it's becoming increasingly more frustrating dealing with long hair but um,
2: fortunately, that's a, the the sort of extent of my concerns at the moment <laughs> i should say that you're as you're saying that kind of sort of grasping at the hair sort of trying to bundle it up because it's obviously weighing you down yeah let's
4: paint let's paint a nice picture
2: for the podcast audience it's just a bit unruly at the moment it's uh, longer at the back than
4: it is uh, on 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 the top really so i think i'm uh, i think i've i think i've passed sort of peak 1980s german footballer mullet area now and i'm just into sort of like real like shaggy mess to be honest are you injured uh, Could fre- be by frequently, this. <laughs> fre- frequently. <laughs> are you good in the air very rarely i haven't i i, I fly i, I can, you can i can fly i, I can fly. yeah exactly um, super super superpowers and i'm using them on uh on our
2: autosport podcast audience aren't they lucky they will be very very pleased well talking of superpowers i think it's going to take some superpowers for sebastian vettel to get back into the world championship hunt. It is all over now, isn't it? I know we don't want it to be because everybody wants the championship to go down to the wire, but it's going to take something absolutely extraordinary now for Lewis Hamilton to lose this, surely.
3: Yeah, I don't think he'll wrap it up in Austin, but I think he probably will in Mexico. Um, That lead is basically insurmountable now, By two, probably even three retirements and you just don't see that happening, I think. The last three races the wheels have quite literally come off of Vettel's charge which is um, a real shame because it it shaped up to be a really good fight and I think had he had won that race in um, Singapore probably won in Malaysia as well I guess second may have been the best he could have done in uh, Suzuka the fight would be wide open we'd have a a brilliant conclusion to the season I mean as it is you know Hamilton can basically just sort of stroke at home doesn't really need to put up too much for a fight um, for a fourth world title but you know you've got to take the points while they're there and he's uh, done a fantastic job in the second half of the season.
4: There's a suggestion that uh, Vettel actually might might have even won at Suzuka it sounded like based on Ben Anderson's analysis of the, the Japanese Grand Prix it sounded like Ferrari was actually quite confident that Vettel's launch was so good off the line that he managed to get into turn one comfortably in second place despite the engine being on five cylinders so he could have got in front we saw that Hamilton sort of struggled had Verstappen was keeping him in check for most, most of the race well, a few seconds behind you never really know how easy he's taking it but it's a third race in a row that Vettel could have had 25 points and how what's he got from that from that period he's got a fourth place finish in, in Malaysia so it it, it has uh, it has been derailed significantly in 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 recent weeks I mean if you look back to see Hamilton's been in decent title shape before and thrown it away in spectacular circumstances uh like a decade ago um but this is quite different to 2007 i i really can't see him having a the sort of capitulation he had he had then and a ferrari driver coming out of nowhere to 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 steal the title it does look like it's all wrapped up for for lewis
3: where's he at with regard to component usage and stuff you know is he is he on the verge of any penalties
4: yeah he's got it's the same they're in the same boat i think hamilton and vettel they've um they're, they're both on the the final free engine in in their pool uh, but Mercedes, when they introduced their most recent power unit in in, in Belgium, which was even earlier than, than Ferrari and Vettel did in Malaysia uh, last week, uh, Mercedes seemed quite confident that they can... Um, you reuse engines that have been in the that are already in the pool that have been used previously so they don't seem to be like on the brink or anything like that and and Hamilton's not even got like a driving reprimand style penalty looming like Vettel has now that he's picked one up for
2: missing the national anthem in in Japan last weekend and also if Mercedes have any concerns with Hamilton they can take a penalty if they need to. They can be ultra-conservative. Ferrari's been playing catch-up. They've tried to stretch out, particularly on the turbos, through the year after having loads of troubles early on, and they decided to kind of stretch it out. And that's probably had an impact on on the whole season, whereas Mercedes, because Hamilton's got such a big lead, he can can probably start at the back in all the last four races and he'll still still win the championship. So that's a very, very strong position for them to be in and should allow them to make sensible decisions.
3: I guess the one, if you were looking for reasons to be optimistic, the sort of resurgence the Red Bull's had recently has has sort of thrown them in the mix. So if Ferrari have a perfect weekend, if the Red Bulls live up to their potential, you know, he can finish fifth in these races. But the gap's just too big now for that to be significant. You know, he he needs a DNF with a Vettel win to have there be any hope of there being a fight.
4: Yeah, it's the reverse of last year, isn't it? When uh, Hamilton went into the last few races, knowing that, didn't matter if he won all the races commandingly from pole position. He needed someone to get in between him and Rosberg to to snatch the 2016 title. That didn't happen. And, yeah, it's, just, it's really difficult to see, um, first of all, Vettel and Ferrari executing what, four flawless weekends. I mean, recent events show that that's not their forte at the moment. And it's uh, even more unlikely that Hamilton's going to have a series of pointless finishes or, or finishes in the bottom end of the top 10. He's on this incredible run of consecutive points finishes at the moment as well, which is quite a nice place to be in when you're you, when you move into cruise and collect mode for the rest of the season.
2: And it's just terrible from Ferrari really now I should at this point say that we've had some criticism for our negative comments about Ferrari so can I just give both Andrew Vanderberg and Scott Mitchell just a chance to say some positive things about Ferrari's performance over the last three races I guess the only thing we can say is the car has been quick but everything else has just gone wrong
4: yeah the car's quick Um, Vettel drove extremely well in Malaysia but to be honest this it's like Raikkonen said it's, it's weird that they've had this sudden flurry of failures and similar problems small problems that have uh, have just un, un, undone the team vettel vettel made the decision to to start in second gear in singapore and then drove aggressively off the line and and caused that start line crash so you can't really be that generous to them over the last few races they've they've been their own worst enemy
3: i i think the some people that do need a a small bit of um uh, congratulation there are the, the mechanics that are putting these cars back together you know they've done a they've had a lot of work to do in a very short period of time you know whether it's Kimi's car in Suzuka or the rebuilding Vettel's car uh, in Malaysia so I mean kudos to them but that's about as much of a faint praise as you can get really.
2: Well, I'm glad we've managed to get that out of the way but it, it has been a, a real shame because Ferrari had the pace that was always the big question would they be able to keep up the development work and have the speed in the car and they did and Had these three races not gone wrong, Vettel could at worst have a small championship lead and at best have a pretty big one. So it's just an absolute disaster really for this season because all anyone really wants to see is a good championship fight. And we we had that for such a big part of the season. But now 17 will just get lumped into this previous run of Mercedes dominance seasons because you're going to look at the points at the end of the year and think, oh, well, Hamilton was miles ahead. You know, if it goes like the last three races, he could well win the championship in in Austin with a, with a three races to spare, which would not reflect the quality of the battle that we've had for much of this season.
3: Yeah, and also earlier on, when uh, Ferrari made such a big leap forward from the previous season and and the way it's developed the car, you would say it bodes really well for the following season. You know, if they can keep that uh, trajectory going. But like you say, if it's just another one of these Mercedes walkovers, and Hamilton's obviously racking up the records along, along with all the the performances as well. You know, the new pole record, and uh, he's homing in it at, at, at quite an impressive rate at Schumacher's overall wins record, which is something I thought would probably last forever. But you should know in this business that nothing's ever. Lasts forever, especially when you have twenty-one races a season.
4: The other thing is that it's Hamilton's performance relative to Bottas, which the final points tally is not going to, uh, not going to reflect the job that Hamilton's done to to really establish himself as the number one in that team. Because Bottas at the summer break had had been on this incredible run of something like seven straight podium finishes. I think he had the same maybe one fewer podium than Vettel at that stage, and he had more podiums than Hamilton's. Okay, he wasn't racking up the, the wins, but Bottas had settled in really quickly at, at Mercedes and, and, and was doing the business, and Hamilton's just absolutely obliterated him in the second half of the season. He's relegated Bottas to... Well, you want to say number 2 role but, but Bottas hasn't even been hasn't even been that. He's been we give Raikkonen a lot of criticism for for being nowhere near Vettel a lot of the time at Ferrari and being a poor second driver. But Bottas has been at that level a couple of times uh, especially since the summer break and Hamilton deserves more credit than he's probably going to get for 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 actually sort of putting Bottas in that position or at least exposing just how difficult Bottas has, has found the last few races.
2: Well, assuming Hamilton does win the title, which he surely will do. And if he doesn't, it's going to be quite a remarkable story. So that, that's probably good for interest in F1. But if he wins a title, it's surely his most impressive title. I wrote a column. It's had a fact that ran on Autosport Plus last week because he's had that close competition from another team and he's just been driving imperiously. certainly Silverstone onwards. He's just got stronger and stronger and stronger.
3: I would say it's definitely the best of his Mercedes ones. Um, I don't know, 2008, I guess there's quite a few errors mixed up in there, but it was a, it was a good fight with Massa for that championship and obviously nail-biting conclusion but uh yeah it's very impressive and obviously it would make him the most successful british driver of all time
4: you know without without any argument yeah he's been he's been superb this season hasn't he i think that's that's probably the difference 08 was probably a harder championship to win in terms of um it going right down to the last and and, and having to overcome a, a quite bizarre season finale um, but i think in terms of the impressiveness of the title win it I would agree that this season is, is probably the most last season he deserved to win the title and factors outside of his control conspired to stop him from doing that. He's going to hit four titles, he's going to outstrip his hero Ayrton and Senna and, and he's done so up against a a guy who ma- who arguably matches him for the honour of greatest driver of his generation. Um, and in, in a competitive car, Hamilton and Mercedes have just put everything together where, where Vettel's failed so uh, across the board Hamilton's sort of done a better job this season arguably than, than he's, he's had to do in, 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 in other title seasons
2: Yeah very much so and the Japanese Grand Prix was just another good example of him just delivering very well excellent throughout qualifying the race he made it look quite easy and there wasn't a great deal to talk about at the front but there was this point where Verstappen kind of turned up at the end in traffic and got within a second of him at one stage and we thought hang on a minute we could actually have a racing finisher.
3: I think had those virtual safety cars been actual safety cars then Verstappen might well have won that race because I'm sure he would have done taken the same mindset that he did in Malaysia and thrown one down the inside and with Hamilton already knowing that Vettel was out second place was almost as good as a win and would probably have let him have it but with the power of that Merck versus the ultimate top end of the Renault it was highly unlikely he was ever going to be able to pull off a a move you know in in a straight racing fight Um, but a a safety car restart who
4: knows. Hamilton said didn't he that he was really determined to keep Verstappen behind him because when he realized that he was so close he was like I need to from what he said it sounded like he felt he had something to prove by beating Verstappen in, in a straight fight and I thought it was actually maybe it was a bit Obviously, we didn't see them go wheel to wheel, so you you can't read too much into it. But I I, I found it quite interesting that he was willing to have that mindset. I quite liked that he didn't, as soon as Stappan got close to him, just like not ease off. But it would have been very, very easy for him to go full cruise and collect and just go, you know, I'm not even, there's two cars battling in front of me. I've got a car behind. I'm taking myself out of this situation. I'm just going to get those 18 points because it's still going to win him the title, essentially. Uh, So I I quite like that he's still in this um, flat-out maximum attack kind of mode.
2: And it would have been interesting, wouldn't it, had Vettel been in there to have a three-team fight for victory. You should actually say as well, Mercedes changed Hamilton's spark plug overnight as well. It was a spark plug that did for Vettel. We have no idea whether the nature of the problems were similar, but it does just raise that little question of, does that speak better for Mercedes' quality control and monitoring procedures than it does for Ferraris? Maybe who knows, but it's a little throwaway detail that, that's Plus, quite think, interesting to think I about. I think
4: it's also a good indicator of like where Ferrari's lacking. It just doesn't have doesn't seem to have that that rigor, that ability to sort of put everything together like Mercedes has done since since twenty twenty fourteen. And it also it's also an indicator of like how much Ferrari have like let everyone down, not just themselves and, and Vettel in the last three races because it's three races in a row. We should have had three teams at the front you know obviously Red Bulls is always competitive in, in in Singapore and and Hamilton proved that he had pace to to, to match and defeat Ricardo on the day so the way the race played out in those conditions maybe Vettel wouldn't have run away at the at the front um, Malaysia would would have been interesting just to have Vettel in the mix okay he might have driven away at the front but at least we would have had that third car there and the same in same at Suzuka like we just didn't get to see how that was going to unfold which is a shame because the season's been amazing from the point of view of finally having a tit- like a title fight between drivers from different teams. So we've got that different kind of dynamic at the front. But what we've still been missing is is having more than one or two teams fighting at the front. And and Red Bull finally getting his act together has unfortunately coincided with Ferrari seeming like to to lose all control in house.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point. That the season really deserves that sort of defining race. Having that proper on-track battle, swapping it around, and you know a, a variety of different leaders, but yeah, circumstances are conspiring against us. Who knows? Maybe we'll have it in Austin. It's got the the circuit layout
2: to uh, make that happen. We can but hope. Well, certainly in terms of the rest of the Japanese Grand Prix, it's a fairly straightforward race. Steppen finished second to Hamilton, Ricardo third, Bottas fourth, Reichen fifth, Ocon and Perez sixth and seventh. They had a little bit of a a dispute about whether Perez should have been let past or not. Then Magnussen and Grosjean, eighth and ninth for Haas. That's only the second time they've had two cars on the point, so good for them. And Massa taking that final point, but fairly... Fairly straightforward race in some ways, but also we did have the the joy of Suzuka. Now, there's a tweet from Alex Vert, who is chairman of the GPDA, so safety is a big thing for him. He takes safety seriously. And he tweeted, no asphalt runoffs in Suzuka cause havoc to F1. We have far too much asphalt beside the tracks. A template for other tracks. Now, we did see multiple offs. Carlos Sainz had an off on Friday practice, went off on the race as well. Bottas had an off in practice, Räikkönen FP3, which caused the gearbox change that left him a bit further down the grid, Grosjean in qualifying, we saw Ericsson off in the race. So it is a track that's creating consequences for errors. I certainly agree with Verts that we do want to see that a little bit more. You don't want to see mindless crashing all the time, but you want the drivers to be on that knife edge, don't you? And that's something that other circuits can learn from, particularly with the cars being so safe. Surely they are designed to hit things now.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree any more, Ed. I think there seems to be uh, a trend from uh within liberty that they want to have more street circuits you see the Copenhagen thing there was a Vietnam rumor that came out and while i quite like the occasional street circuit i think you have to be um wary of that that the, the dna of formula one is tracks like suzuka with super fast challenging high speed corners technical challenges um now they might have run out of despotic states that they can charge hundreds of millions of pounds to build tracks that are a one-off but uh, there are still places where there's you know we need as many race tracks as possible because street circuits get used once you know for in a calendar year so they don't actually add anything to the greater motorsport community you know there's there's no trickle down there's no other support series there's no indigenous championships taking place there um and i think it would be fantastic to see The proliferation of asphalt runoff replaced by some more gravel traps. I think somewhere like Spa has been completely emasculated by the amount of asphalt runoff there. To me, it's not anywhere near the challenge it used to be. And I think you're spot on with the safety. And if we're going to have the Halo and these even more super safe cars in the future, then the the tracks themselves have to be perceived as being as challenging as possible. And by challenging, I don't mean dangerous. You know, I don't think there should be trees lining the tracks or bits of barrier that stick out at inappropriate angles but i think paying the price for a mistake is what racing should be about i don't i think if you run 20 meters off the track that's tough luck you know your your axles deep in gravel and it's game over don't do it
4: there was a there was a moment during the race as well i know nico hülkenberg eventually retired didn't he because he had the, the problem where the drs stuck open and they had to retire the car but he was he was running a really long long first stint and his his pace was his pace was impressive, and it was actually going to vault him sort of ahead of looked like it was going to put him ahead of uh, of even both Force Indias, and he was going to move from being sort of fringes of the top ten to um, to seventh, I think, uh, based on a, a perfectly executed race. It would have been a fantastic result, and um, as it as it was, he ended up when he finally made his pit stop, he, he re- rejoined in like ninth or tenth or wherever it was, and suddenly he was in on the fringes of the points, and that was because. Um, he he ran wide at the 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 second Degna corner and he um and he went across the gravel and it cost him half a dozen seconds. And that would have been the difference between him finishing seventh and finishing ninth or tenth, or at least having to work really bloody hard to get back into to seventh on fresh tires. And that to me was just a really good example of if that wasn't there, if that was just tarmac runoff, then the penalty would have been he'd have been half a second slower through that through that sector there's no punishment for a small innocent mistake that a lot this very easy to do because those corners are notoriously tricky um but as as it happened he 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 paid quite or would have paid quite a big price obviously his race ended in another way so unfortunately he quite didn't quite see how it would pan out but little things like that i think are, i think are important hulkenberg said after qualifying that he doesn't get any greater joy from not throwing it off at suzuka because the track's closer it's business as usual because their job is to not throw it off so the drivers will assuming they're good drivers will will perform they won't throw it off the road just because there's gravel on the on the outside so i just i think it just it makes it makes it better as a whole if you have that added challenge because you have it's the it's the threat of a consequence rather than just sort of this this idea that um, th- this idea that it needs to be like inherently, inherently dangerous. You just need to see drivers punished for mistakes.
2: To play devil's advocate, people sometimes say that you don't want gravel traps or walls too close because if a driver makes a small mistake and, say, spins in the race and they're out on the spot, that's bad for the fans watching because they want to see the drivers performing. So, does anybody think there's anything in that?
3: Well, I think there may have been something in that when cars would break gearboxes or blow up or whatever but the fact is now they have reliability inbuilt you know they're they're basically not allowed to be unreliable and i think there was you know we can all recall times um there was an australian grand prix once i think that damon hill won by two laps you know from
2: smoking in a va panis johnny morbidelli
3: third exactly um and that's because the cars were just inherently much less reliable then now especially a, when they hit the pit wall yeah absolutely yeah. um now if uh if a race is won by more than sort of 20 seconds it's seen as being a walkover you know what What would we
4: make of two laps Well i think you look at it, the japanese grand prix had had 15 finishes which uh, i i can't speak for like with certainty, but that kind of feels like one of the sort of lower finishing counts of the season. And did it make any difference to your respective enjoyments of the Grand Prix? Because a couple of them happened, like a couple of them spun off, and there were three retirements. So there were five non-finishers. A quarter of the field didn't finish at the weekend. It didn't affect my Grand Prix. I didn't affect my the way the way I watched it. So the fact that two drivers paid, um like, so so signs paid a penalty. Ericsson paid a penalty in the most extreme terms by because they went off. It they it. it it, it ruined their race like that that that's good two drivers were punished it, it makes the circuit more challenging and it doesn't actually lower the the value or entertainment factor of the Grand Prix as a whole
3: we, we're in this era now where uh, there's sort of this default position of it being like a Leicester City but if you want to give the chance for other people to shine for lower teams to get in then punish the teams higher up for their mistakes so you know rather than than guys being able to make a mistake if you're in a one of those top three teams you can pretty much run off as far as you want you will make your way back to that position you know you might lose out in the fight you're having but you will still finish in the top six if they're beached in the gravel then that's another point position that's open for somebody else further down the grid and like you say uh two hasses in the points you know they've taken advantage of um of people like hulkenberg and um science uh not finishing the race and good for them you know that's that's their bread and butter that's how they get those points
2: now looking a little bit further down the order, in 12th place was Jolyon Palmer on his final Grand Prix appearance for Renault. His 35th Grand Prix start might well be his last Grand Prix start. He's going to be replaced with Carlos Sainz for the US Grand Prix. That creates a, a vacancy at, at Toro Rosso, which looks like it's going to be filled by Daniel Kviat returning alongside Pierre Gasly, although there is still some debate about whether Gasly will go and try and clinch the Super Formula title and race in the doubleheader at Suzuka rather than doing the USGP race. But sending the STR drivers aside, Jolion Palmer, any sympathy for him or is it just one of those things of you've had your chance, sorry you couldn't cut it, understandable move from Renault? I have sympathy
4: because it's not like his uh season has continued on its like miserable trajectory. He obviously had his sixth place finish in, in Singapore which was a career best. Um he has genuine uh genuinely and generally improved second half of the season. You know, he had the beat beaten of Hulkenberg in 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 Belgium as well and he was um he Japan was kind of a a fitting end to his stint at Renault in the sense that he had a mechanical he had a, re, a problem that res, resulted in an engine engine change which put him at the back of the grid um, for the race and then he made good progress he, he executed the alternative strategy very well put on super softs for the finish was charging back through catching Alonso and Massa fighting over the final point at two seconds a lap. Virtual safety car for two or three laps. Scuppers his charge. He falls a second and a half shy of finishing in the points, which it must be about the sixth time this season he's finished 11th or 12th and been within a second or two of 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 the points. So sympathy in so far as that he has genuinely improved, and it's a shame he won't get to see out the season. Um, but ultimately, over the sort of 18 months he's had at, at, at Renault, he's not he's not shown the signs that he's the top-class driver that they need and he's been comfortably defeated by Hulkenberg this season.
3: Yeah, uh, I echo all of that really, just chucking in the fact that he was a pretty poor in Malaysia uh, and that probably has contributed to the speed at which this has has happened. I think if the opportunity was there to get science in and knowing that he was going to be part of the team in the, uh, for the future season, it's a sensible move on their side. So I think it's always a bit harsh when people get dropped midway through the season. But it's difficult to have too many sympathies for him. I mean, ultimately, he just didn't deliver.
2: It also creates an interesting situation in the Constructors' Championship. The minor positions in the Teams' Championship aren't normally that interesting for people. But if you look, in fifth, we've got Williams on 66, sixth, Toro Rosso on 52, seventh, Renault on 43, eighth, Haas on 43. Now, the difference between fifth and eighth in the Championship based on last year was about $14 million. So there's big differences there. And Toro Rosso has effectively lost quite a big weapon there certainly to, to Runo, so you you could argue that that has massively boosted Runo's chances of moving up a place and maybe even trying to catch Williams. So this could have quite a big impact downstream, if you like, in terms of the income for those teams next season. It's not an insignificant sum of money, is it?
3: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I was just looking at the uh, Drivers' Championship here, I hadn't realised quite how Paul and Kvyat had been mean, four points compared to uh, science's 48. I mean, that's, that's terrible. I mean, that that really is awful. And then Gasly is new, you know, he he's um he's a got a lot of promise, I would say. Um but he's yet to um you know really deliver over the course of a of a Grand Prix. He was potentially in the mix for the points here and under pressure he locked up flat spotted tyre. So you know as you would expect when you're when you're that green, you know it's hardly Um, done millions of miles of testing either but yeah I hadn't really considered the implications there but I think it it strengthens Renault hands considerably in that fight in the constructors
2: I can imagine there's probably some financial side to it so it may be that uh, that both sides are protecting the money they would gain or lose and it probably all balances out in the end but Yeah, you can certainly say in terms of results it's going to make life a lot harder for for Toro Rosso. Now, Palmer's hopes of a drive next season, the only place he's really been mentioned as a serious contender for is is Williams, and I say serious contender, but uh, a long-shot outside contender. I don't think he's even really a serious threat there. But what we do have is this shootout test it's not really going to be a single test it's going to be spread over several runs we've got Robert Kubica will have a, a couple of days I think at Silverstone and Hungara ring in the 2014 Williams Paul de Resta of course who filled in at the Hungarian Grand Prix for the Earl Felipe Massa will also get a run and those two are in contention along with the incumbent Felipe Massa who's looking less likely to stay on but is still in the mix and then also Pascal Verline has been mentioned as a as a possibility as well so how do we how do we see that is this coming down now to Kibitza versus deresta and the others as a an outsider and what would be the wise move for williams here
3: well, I would love it to be an old-school shootout where the, all four of them were there for a day in Hareth or something and, and, and whoever was the most impressive got the drive. But it and, was, who, and
2: whoever lost would, for the rest of their days, have hard luck stories about how it was all rigged because that always happens as well.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Um, and they're, they're forced to have uh, sporadic careers in IndyCar to, to, to follow. The interesting thing with the Kibitza um, DeResta head, it's, it's sort of like the comeback story, isn't it? And obviously one's slightly more romantic than the other, but you wouldn't have thought, at the beginning of the season that the rest had any hope of coming back as a full-time racing driver yet he got uh, a chance with massas illness in uh, in Hungary and you know did a really good job in very difficult circumstances and um, and fair play to him uh, for taking that with both hands uh the kibitz comeback story is um, phenomenal that he's worked himself into this position given you know uh, where he seemed to be 18 months ago with no no rally drive and seemingly no real options of uh, a competitive proposition to get back in you know maybe a, a bit of sports car action um, I'm slightly uh, concerned by the uh, ease at which Renault were prepared to let him go because uh, obviously he tested with them relatively extensively so they would have seen all of the data and everything and know exactly where he's at with his fitness but I'd equally I'd love to see him back just because you know I think anyone that's been a fan of the sport for 20 years or more would appreciate exactly what talent he had and how you know had he have been Fulfilled the potential he had, and ended up at Ferrari as the contract was done. You know, history could have been very different, but um, it'd be nice to see him back. Um, Obviously, Verline's got great Mercedes links, so maybe that would uh, help facilitate those engine payments. Um, Felipe Massa, you know, he's done his three millionth Grand Prix or whatever he's on, and you know, maybe it's time for him to race somewhere else.
4: I'm struggling to sort of work out how much I care about the 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 romance of Kubica's return, and I know that sounds really callous it's amazing to to see that he's driven a formula one car again of any kind let alone then actually sort of get involved and and test a, a modern car that the guy's recovery his mental strength as much as anything is an absolute inspiration and i don't want to downplay the significance of what he has gone through and how he's managed to recover but at the same time formula one doesn't exist on romance so if he's not good enough if he's not quick enough He shouldn't get the drive.
2: I think the key with Kibitzer is I don't think there's any concerns about his ability to drive a Formula One car over a lap reasonably quickly. I don't think there's any concerns about his ability to do race distances. I think it's just that last little fraction of a percent of when things get hectic and there's all sorts of things going along. It's just there will be some point where the limitation he's got is going to hold him back against others. I remember covering Alex Zanardi in the World Touring Car Championship, now very, very different injury even more even more horrendous although Kubitz's injury was, was also pretty horrendous but there were points where Zanardi just had too much to do because of that limitation and he was very good on certain circuits, Bruno was very good at long quick corners that kind of thing, I don't think it would be quite as extreme for Kubica but it, it's going to be difficult, you know if Williams run him and actually no there's no, no problem they test him through every possible range of things and activities and say no he's fine great and it would be nice to see it but I'd be very, very surprised. And Paul de Resta is still a very good driver. I think people forget how strong he was when he was with Force India. It finished on a little bit of a low note. The second half of the last season, the third and final season, was a little bit iffy. And I think people didn't warm to Paul de Resta as a character very well. I think he's a little bit older, a little bit wiser about that now. Did a great job jumping in at Hungary. So actually, I think you can make a pretty strong case for de Resta being a very good a very good pick. I mean, do you think the rest of coming back adds anything to to F one to to Williams?
4: In a, in a in a, an ideal world, to be honest, probably neither of them are are, are being being considered, and it's a straight Mercedes Junior. Pascal Verline goes there because he's had a he's had a good uh, he's had two good seasons with with lower end lower teams. It's a Mercedes customer team. It makes sense. Slot him in. Give uh, Lance Stroll, who get has his reputation as just sort. Of, you know he's he's only good because of how wealthy his dad is. Uh, we can actually see him up against a highly rated youngster. So let's see how how he gets on. In an ideal world of merit, in a meritocracy where young drivers get opportunities, that's probably what happens. But obviously, um, it doesn't look like uh, Verline is uh, Verline's really going to going to go there. I know there's this noise about Martini needing an older driver. Maybe there's some wiggle room on it, but that they, they. I think really
2: that's quite a narrow band of places where that's where that's an issue. I don't think it's an absolute deal breaker from my understanding of it yeah
4: but just the rest of it would be good uh, for for the reasons that you've said Uh, and Kubica obviously has this incredible story that it would fulfil
2: talking of giving young drivers opportunities Formula 2 and GP3 were at Jerez for a standalone round over the weekend you may have have missed it although it was broadcast on TV now both championships were won Charles Leclerc the Ferrari Junior sealed the F2 crown that's been on the cards for a very long time massively impressive season and George Russell who's on Mercedes books clinched the GP3 crown now, Leclerc, I think we're all quite excited about. We've talked about him on the podcast before. We're all expecting him to be at Sauber. Andrew Vanderberg, Berg, you covered probably the most celebrated GP2 champion, as the championship was called back then in 2006, when Lewis Hamilton won in his rookie season. Who? Yeah, some, some driver went on to do a few bits and pieces in a few categories. He's kind of the, the standard bearer for mega GP2 crowns, isn't he? So is Leclerc starting to creep into that same sort of territory for how strong he was? He certainly uh, would appear to have the potential the hamilton
3: story is a difficult one to replicate because the way that the stars aligned meant that there was a, a top line formula 1 drive for him to slot straight into and then we of course we had the whole romance of him podium on his debut you know and fighting ultimately unsuccessfully for the world championship and you know was probably the greatest ever rookie season formula 1 um if leclerc ends up at cyber as so i think we all expect him to uh It will be a miracle if he's able to replicate anything close to that. This is like when
2: Hamilton was linked with running for Midland, wasn't it? Or Spike or whichever it was being called at the time. People suggested he might get placed there for... Yeah, that'd be like that situation, wouldn't it? Right, right. Make something of that,
4: Ricardo, yeah, and, uh, Ricardo at HRT. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly.
3: And and who knows how those things end up? Because sometimes you know, as uh, when we talk about Formula E a bit later on, you do one season in one of those uh, back of the grid teams, and the next thing you know, you're an F1 reject, and that's got absolutely nothing to do with your abilities. But I from everything I've seen of the uh he does seem to be an incredibly accomplished driver. But then I would have said exactly the same thing about Nico Hulkenberg, and things haven't quite worked out for him in that way in Formula One. So. Too early to say, which is a predictably will-of-the-road answer. But there seems to be every reason to be positive, especially if he's being groomed at Cyber to take over from Kimi when he inevitably retires. You know, in a hundred seasons' time, when the fans will be happy with him doing that. Um, but no, if he if he's able to get himself into a front line F1 driver in the next couple of seasons, then we will know for sure what you. I don't want to see is him atrophy uh, in a in a mid grid or back of the grid team where it's really hard to show exactly how good you are because it's hard to quantify where that car is in terms of ultimate pace
2: and then of course if you're at the back of the grid you don't get someone at Ferrari saying well I haven't seen him further up the grid have we they actually had quite a good progression with uh, with Gil Bianchi who was in a similar position a few years back we did two years with uh, with Marussia and then was going to step up to Sauber who actually for 15 would have been about the right level because that was Sauber's stronger recent season when they were actually getting a few few decent results and had a couple of a couple of top sixes so that's the kind of progression that Ferrari would be wanting to see but it's going to be quite hard work at at Sauber so there might need to be an interim step for him.
3: Uh, The the interesting thing obviously that would be Fred Vasseur's first season there and Um, you mentioned i was covering gp2 in 2006 i'd also been covering the previous season a couple of seasons of f3 and that was when the time that asm and art were absolutely dominant in the junior single seater world and i've got an enormous amount of respect for fred and i think if he's given the uh time and finances which is probably more important uh to turn that team around i could see them going back to something like what they used to be which was a you know a fantastic place for a young driver to be because they would have cars that were competitive enough to allow you to to race properly uh, be in the mix for points whenever you could uh, be on your game uh, on your game rather um, so let's hope that those sort of stars align for Leclerc and we, and we really get to see what he's capable of.
4: Let's also not forget that obviously Sauber the reason that Leclerc has, has this expected opportunity at Salber is because Ferrari wants to work a lot more closely with Salber and have it as an effective B team and um, you can read a, a feature from Lawrence Barreto on on how exactly that looks like it's going to work on Autosport Plus later this week but basically um that there's reason to think that you know would a two-year stint at Sauber for Leclerc be such a bad thing? Because okay, they're going to be probably be at the back of the grid next season, or, or maybe make minor progress. But if they are going to team up more closely on the technical side with Ferrari, if they're going to be, have a bit more investment, or, or or whatever they're going to do there, um, why can't they get back to sort of where they where they have sort of I guess traditionally been in in F one's pecking order, which is this sort of like obviously Swiss teams are a bit neutral, but like a sort of plucky underdog that I I. I've always had a bit of an une- uh, an inexplicable soft spot for um, but m- maybe that's maybe that's Leclerc's best bet. I mean Haas has got Grosjean and, and Magnussen signed up for, for next season but maybe if Haas looks like the better bet than Sauber in a couple of years time maybe they place him there and that puts him a bit further up the grid. I think mean, the main thing is that he is a class driver who will have an opportunity in Formula 1. We've had it with um, with Verstappen and Ocon and, and and Van Dorn at McLaren now and Leclerc is this, the latest in this line and, and Gasly has now finally had his opportunity at Toro Rosso. So he's the latest in a line of stellar... Uh, junior junior series champions who has finally been afforded an, an opportunity and given the complaints and criticisms that you hear about Ferrari's conservative or Formula One in general not supposedly given drivers opportunity, I guess you can at least take some kind of relief that at the very least Leclerc will be in Formula One next season and get, given something of an opportunity to prove himself
2: One well, of that same group of drivers starting to knock on the F1 door, slightly fainter on the F1 radar at the moment is George Russell as we mentioned, he's a Mercedes junior. He's kind of number three in the queue behind Pascal Verlain and Esteban Ocon. Actually, I think you should probably say those two the other way around, as Ocon is clearly the one at, at the front of the queue there. 2014 McLaren All Sport BRDC award winner, so we also sport know him very well. He's absolutely dominated GP3, as far as you can dominate a category like that, for the team that has destroyed the opposition ART. So what do we make of, of George Russell, his next step? he hopes I think will be F2 although Mercedes will have a big say in what that will be it's yet to be confirmed.
3: Yes I think uh, the next challenge for him is to impose himself on the the F2 uh, scene with how competitive that grid is now you know he he probably will be given the grace of of a couple of seasons there. Um, As you mentioned though he's in a bit of a queue so he would say given the way that he's finished the season there must be a bit of pressure on Bottas and if he carries on like that uh, into the following season they'll be looking at their options but the obvious thing to do would be for Ocon to go there he would be uh, insane I think to avoid that and I think they would probably lose him if they if they didn't take up that opportunity but could that create a Force India seat that um, Russell could move into I think you know if you're looking uh, two seasons down the line then he should be If he can replicate his uh, form into F2, he's got to be banging on the door of an F1 drive in in, uh, in a couple of seasons' time.
2: And if you look at his form in GP3, it's quite a tricky championship GP3 sometimes to make an impression in because you have the the reverse grid second race and it's a little bit... The sort of poor relation of of F2 isn't it, but he's done six race ones should we say, which are the proper races because the seventh one, he had a sensor problem didn't start, and he's won four of the six race ones that he started. Now race one, because that's set by your qualifying performance and it's a kind of straightforward race without that distortion of the reversed grid, is always a good indicator so he he has done a a mega job in that championship just like Ocon did when he uh, a few years ago beat Luca Giotto to the championship, so he's making a—he's certainly making a case for himself, even though he's not perhaps always meant Well, not often mentioned in F one circles.
4: Yeah, I I covered George's first season in 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 cars when he did BRDC Formula Four the year he won the McLaren Autosport BRDC awards. And one one thing that always stood out with him for me, regardless of the category he's he's been in, is he's uh, he's, he's he's very mature. He came into to to cars. Um, I think he was the, at the time the youngest winner of the the award as well um so we get excited as 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 brits in looking at who the next hamilton's going to be obviously we're all very excited to see what lando norris does because he's he's looking like an incredible talent and maybe maybe that's helping george a bit removes the spotlight on him he's sort of doing his own thing on the f1 ladder at the moment he's um he's higher up it than, than than lando is don't forget that george drove for mercedes in in Hungary, in the uh, in in the test after the the, the Grand Prix at Budapest, so George isn't exactly just like a what how I don't know how you would say it, but just like a sort of token Mercedes junior driver. He's he's rated very highly within that setup. He's um, he's he's shown enormous he's enormous uh, um, enormous talent. He's had his potential has been clear from from when he was in in carts. So it, it's good to see him getting opportunities and, and deliver. He was in there free at that time when. Um, okay he fight at the moment in f3 like fighting against premier is very difficult obviously norris is doing it with carl in this season but maybe maybe george had sort of like peak uh, premier opposition at the time which uh, you mentioned like art and, and and what they were like like premier is the modern modern equivalent of that so so russell's very good uh, it will be interesting to see what he does in f2 next season where exactly he'll slot in whether he'll stay with ART. Obviously, Prima has, uh, especially this season, has had very, very close Ferrari ties with uh, with Leclerc and, and Fuoco, so... Maybe that door's closed, but uh, ART dams that sort of thing. You can still do a job with one of those teams, and he's very, very switched on. He's a very intelligent racing driver. So I suspect that one of the big things about his progress in GP three, because obviously he's beaten a you know second year F one junior in Jack Aitken and for and guys like that, he's obviously got on top of the tyres very quickly, and I think he's smart enough to do that in F two, which is obviously the big challenge there.
3: Actually, a uh, thing about it, if you extrapolate what his career trajectory could be, there'll be a Mercedes Formula E entry. Around that time, if he did two seasons of uh, of F2, that he might slot into. And if he is as a as an intelligent racer as you as you mentioned there, then he might be the ideal pick for them to go alongside someone with a bit more formally experienced.
4: Yeah, and obviously, like moving someone into a different category, like if a seat's not available in F1, isn't exactly something new. For Mercedes guys, that's what happened to Duester, isn't it? Verline as well. So you know, you Ocon go, went to uh, DTM, yeah, and and Ocon,
2: didn't he? For a, he didn't go into F two after GP three. Well, it's was funny, wasn't it? Because
4: there. he obviously started. He spent most spent the first half of last year sort of at the back of DTM because it's a bloody hard championship, especially as a as a young rookie. Um, and then halfway through the season, he gets called up to make his Grand Prix debut. So his year turned around quite quickly. So yeah, the options on the table, and I, I think George is the sort of guy who's got the ability and intelligence to sort of make the most of it of of, of any.
2: Sort Sort of situation he's thrown into. Well, enough on what may happen in the future with drivers, both both young and those trying to make comebacks with the likes of Williams. For now, the big story is the fact that Lewis Hamilton is on the brink of the world championship, and I think the the Japanese Grand Prix made it an in inevitability, which is a, a shame. Not because anybody doesn't want to see Lewis Hamilton winning the championship, but because you just want to see a big battle. So thanks to Andrew Vanderberg and to Scott Mitchell for joining me to look back at the Japanese Grand Prix. And thanks very much to you, the listeners, for paying attention for this long. And while there isn't a podcast to listen to, I suggest checking out autosport.com for all the latest news and F1 and the whole world of motorsport. Check out our Autosport Plus subscriber area. Only 94p a week gets you all the best insights and analysis and columns and opinions and all the things you expect from our, our team of journalists. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Autosport Podcast. Music is 6 a.m. by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
1: This year is your year. Even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash, Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium supernatural weather repellent materials. So you can jump into this year with both feet. Rain or shine. The high top uppers are made from temperature regulating moisture wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-condition traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's a l l b i r d s.com.